I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. In the first part of my engaging and enlightening conversation with Donald Robertson, we started to cover stoicism in general. We looked at how it helps in the current times of a pandemic and, you know, in things like anger management and so on. And then we started with the four thoughts of wisdom, which he spoke about from the conversation between Plato and Socrates. And from that, we've gathered why we should deal with challenges in a way that's very, very different than the way our world is dealing with the current challenges. Donald Robertson is one of the world's top most authorities on the topic of Stoicism. He's a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist and a trainer. He's a specialist in teaching evidence-based psychological skills. He is a known expert in the relationship between modern psychotherapy and classical Greek and Roman philosophy. His therapy practice has helped thousands of clients with social anxiety and self-confidence issues. And he's also the author of six books and many articles on philosophy, psychotherapy, and psychological skills training. His latest book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, was a number one bestseller in philosophy. The example I normally give about that is, you know, you'd be sitting in traffic and you're a little late because it's raining outside and you're completely zoomed in and focused on your late, but you're forgetting that you're sitting in a machine that is moving you from A to B when you had to walk in the past. You're forgetting that it's raining water, not bombs like it does in Syria. You're forgetting that there is a million other people around you that yeah, are yeah. in the rain too and are late too. And that this single event of you, just you being late, is not that big of a deal when you really think about it in the bigger picture, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think it's funny how these things that seem almost silly can be quite useful. And I said, you know, I often think to myself, especially when I was living in Canada and it was snowing outside, how amazing it was that we had double glazing and a roof over our heads. And it wasn't that long ago that people were sitting in a wooden shack with a candle and nothing to read but the Bible. You know, and like how privileged we are, how lucky we are. And you remind me of an amazing thing, which I, I think you'll, you'll dig, that Marcus Aurelius says. It's one of his, I think, one of his most memorable comments. So Marcus Aurelius in the Meditations, he says, I hope he came up with this himself, by the way, because it's a very interesting observation. He said that when we imagine the presence of things that are actually absent, like we imagine having a sports car that we don't have, that generates craving and desire. And it's painful because at some level we realize that we're just imagining it and we don't actually have those things in reality. And we could sit all day imagining the present, imagining having things that we don't have, 
imagining the presence of things that are actually absent. And so Marcus says that's one way of understanding desire. It's a simple way of understanding it. But he asks himself, what happens if you do the opposite? What happens if you imagine the absence of things that are present and what kind of emotion does that tend to generate? So I imagine I don't have a roof over my head, although I do actually have one. Imagine I don't have any cold water to drink on a hot day, although I'm lucky enough to have taps in my house and things like that. Marcus says the emotion that goes with that is gratitude. And it's rarer. We don't do it as often. It kind of takes more of a mental effort sometimes to tap into those feelings of gratitude. And so Marcus says to himself, maybe instead of imagining the presence of things that are actually absent and then feeling this painful craving or the sense of, of missing out on them, maybe we should spend more time and effort imagining the absence of things that we take for granted, like the absence of, of things that are present, in order to be able to access those feelings of gratitude. I, feel, I always feel I'm lucky in a way because, like, well, like many other people, you know, I, I'm reasonably successful, well off, like, or, you know, enough for me anyway. I earn more money than I spend. That's good enough for me. But when I was a child, my parents were very poor. And uh, when I grew up in a house, like, we didn't have a car, we didn't have a fridge. My mother had to go to the shops every day, get the food we were going to eat, she had to put it in the larder. We didn't have refrigeration, we had a coal fire. So I can, I can remember those things. And when I cast my mind back, I think how lucky I am now that I've got a fridge. You know, how lucky I am now uh, that I've got air conditioning and central heating and stuff like that. I didn't have that when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, and the internet. I have the world's library at my fingertips. When I was a boy growing up, I had to spend my weekends scouring secondhand bookshops. I was desperately trying to find a, a few cheap books on philosophy. And now I take it for granted that I can just Google yeah. any book that I want and find it online, buy it on Amazon or whatever. And we get used to it and we take these things for granted. Yeah, there's that incredible, incredible sense of entitlement. I mean, the list goes on forever. I have eyes, right? Yeah. I never signed the deal that said I was going to come here and be able to see. I have a voice that people seem to like. You know, I could have been squeaky and really weird, right? And it's not against people who are squeaky and really weird. But honestly, I mean, you take those things for granted. And somehow the list is endless. (laughs) There's an endless list of things we can be grateful. The Stoics say one of their ways of putting it is rather than thinking that you have things, you should tell yourself they're on loan to you from nature. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I say life is for rent. You know, even the people that we love, the Stoics say we should think of them as being on loan to us from nature so that we can, we're more grateful for the time that we have with them and we have this kind of slightly more, again, realistic sense of the, the transience of things. Our entire life, they would say, is on loan to us from nature. And they're very keen that we should never take life in general for granted. We talked about eyes and arms and legs and central heating, but the whole of our life is something we take for granted. Yeah. And uh, life itself, the Stoics think we need to remind ourselves it's uh, nature's doing us a favor, you know, and it doesn't last forever. And if you calculate the odds of mommy and daddy having come together at that time or that one little guy actually managed to reach the egg to make you out of a billion of them, you know, the reality of the odds of that is is quite something remarkable. And we just take it for granted that I'm here, I'm alive, and I can complain that it's raining. 
Yeah, oh yeah. And the chances are that there's even life on Earth. Exactly. Like in the in the whole universe. It, it might yeah. even be perhaps this is the only inhabited planet. Or certainly maybe the only inhabited planet for a long, long way around. Yeah. And uh, the chances of life evolving in the way that it has on a planet are phenomenal. Like we, you mm. know, it's, uh, the whole thing mm. is a miracle. And it's only in our most mystical or philosophical moments that we remember that normally. Like generally we go around, like you say, you know, just getting annoyed because we get delayed a little bit and by traffic or these kind of yeah. the internet's not working very good today or something yeah. like that. In your work and mine, you often get people who are so obsessing about little things and you smile and you hug them mentally or physically and you say, it's really not that big of a deal. It's really not that big of a deal. And I think that wisdom of the Stoic view of life, it's that nothing is really that important in isolation as one event. I think that's really profound. But then they also want to kind of try and empathize with people and understand, look, it's natural that people are going to place a lot of importance on individual things. So they're quite gentle in a way about often, right? maybe not always, but generally they're quite empathic, quite gentle. Marcus talks about this. He says, don't lecture people like a schoolmaster, but try to communicate with them in a way that they can understand. Epictetus says when somebody is, is complaining or bemoaning something, he says, if you have to moan along with them, as long as you do it externally, but don't do it internally which is a very interesting thing to say. He says, like, sometimes you've got to show compassion to people. You can't just act as if it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. He said, but just don't allow yourself to agree with them. You have to do this in therapy to some extent. When a client's telling you about a painful experience, we have to exhibit some kind of empathy to make them feel validated. But we can't go as far as to actually, in our own mind, agree with the client because they may be engaged in selective thinking. You know, mm. Perhaps they're exaggerating things or distorting things. And the therapist needs to be able to see through that, see beyond it, but nevertheless understand it. That's quite a tricky balancing act, but the Stoics seem to have understood this is one of the challenges. And, you know, I should say that, that, so those were three things. And then the final thing, Glaucon says to Socrates, so what's the fourth thing? And Socrates says, well, look, the fourth thing is actually the most important of all. He said, the wise man or the wise woman, in the face of adversity, they tell themselves that by getting really upset or by getting really frustrated and indulging in that, they prevent themselves from doing the very thing that's most required in the face of a crisis. And Glaucon says, well, what's that, Socrates? And Socrates says it's to think clearly and rationally and solve yeah, the problem. To do as is needed. Like, he says, when you get really upset, when you freak out, you're no use to man the beast. And what you really need in a crisis is somebody who's got a clear head and isn't getting really angry or getting really anxious, but can see things more objectively and is willing to think them through patiently. That's how you get problems solved. Whereas uh, if you get emotional, angry, maybe it gives you a lot of energy, maybe it gives you a lot of force to express yourself, but it can also lead to quite poor, impulsive problem solving. The way I like to put it is, um, in the ancient world, there was an argument about this, and it still exists today. So some philosophers, partly the Aristotelians, were known for this, said that a certain amount of anger is a, a good thing. Anger can be healthy in moderation. There's such a thing as righteous or justified anger. And the Stoics said, mm, no, like, if you understand anger is not just a feeling, but also a way of thinking, anger itself is a, a kind of philosophy. It, it's not just a feeling, it's a way of thinking. Of it's perceiving a, life. A perspective, yeah. It's a set of beliefs uh, and so on. 
the, the Stoics said uh, anger always involves distortions and irrationality. So in that sense, it's never really good. And I think the best way to explain this is when people say, look, anger in moderation can be good because it can motivate us to make changes. There's a meme on the internet. So the Stoics didn't know about this, but I do. Like we have a <laughs> meme and it, it's about coffee and it says coffee do stupid things faster and with more energy. <laughs> I believe it says, right? Yeah. And I think that's, that's the motivational theory of anger, though. It's like yeah, saying exactly. anger motivates you to change things. Your anger gets stupid things done quickly and with more energy because anger impairs your problem-solving ability, even if it propels you forward into action. Those being irrational and acting more forcefully aren't really two things that we'd normally want to combine. So I think uh, compassion and love, determination... Uh, and reason can do a better job, generally speaking, than anger can. I'd qualify that a little bit by saying that the Stoics, and we touched on that a bit earlier, the Stoics have this idea that there are involuntary emotional responses that they view as natural and indifferent and inevitable, and we accept those. And they say it's fine. Even animals get angry if you pinch them or something like that. And if somebody walked up to you and spat in your eye in the street, of course you'd get angry, even the Socrates would, a sage would. But the difference is what happens next. A wise person would then pause and take a step back from it, whereas the angry person indulges in those feelings, amplifies them, and allows themselves to, to be swept along by them. And so Socrates isn't saying you're not allowed to have any feelings at all. It's simply that you shouldn't allow those feelings to control you. Like you should be bigger than them and able to, yeah. to feel yeah. them, accept them, but rise above them and reassert your ability to think clearly and rationally. Yeah. yeah. So, Donald, I'm a big fan of your work. I mean, I love your first book, which you surprisingly, I once heard you saying, oh, that wasn't a self-help book. It was a textbook for psychologists to understand the philosophy of Stoicism. But in your last book, you talk about Marcus Aurelius, one statement that I really want you to spend a couple of minutes to talk about, which basically says that the universe is change and life is opinion. Yeah. That is so... I always think that would make a good tattoo. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's a great tattoo. So this is a, the summary of a much more complex, you know, sort oh, yeah. of... 10 strategies of coping with anger and coping with hardship and so on. Let's talk about this. The universe is change and life is opinion. He's actually talking. It's so weird. Um, so one of the things that Marcus Aurelius is doing in the meditations is trying to understand subtle concepts and then compress them into very short sayings so that he can remember them. Yeah. And this is a Stoic psychological strategy. Um, Epictetus talks about the Stoic that, that Marcus uh, studies. So you see Marcus saying the same things over and over again in different words and often trying to abbreviate them. And here, in Greek, I think it's only six words. And he's combining two things, like you said. And actually, in a sense, they're two books. And they're his two favorite philosophers. He says this in the preceding paragraph, basically. Uh, he lets us know what they mean. And so one of them is Epictetus. So Epictetus says it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them. And Marcus thinks this is the most interesting part of his whole philosophy, although it's a complex philosophy. And so he sums this up as life is opinion. 
So he doesn't mean that everything is just subjective, as people sometimes think. What he means is that our emotional life is shaped by our underlying beliefs, particularly our value judgments, because that's what Epictetus is saying. It's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them. And we know that's what he's referring to here. So Marcus thinks, how can I make this as concise as possible? I'll just say that life is opinion. And Heraclitus is the other philosopher that he mentions a lot and that he likes. And Heraclitus, a much older philosopher, said that the universe has changed. And uh, he said we can't step into the same river twice because it's always different water that's flowing through it. Um, it's like literally not the same physical thing. It's different water than it was a minute ago, yet we talk about it as the same river. And so he said the whole universe is constantly changing and in flux. Marcus says something quite odd about that. He says to himself, this isn't the same body to which your mother gave birth, which is quite a very peculiar way of putting it. But again, whether or not you agree with that, it's quite a memorable way of phrasing it. He says, this isn't the same body my mother to which my mother gave birth because the cells have changed over time. It's grown and transformed yeah. and um, constantly dying and being reborn in a sense each day. You know, if I went back and spoke to myself 20 years ago, maybe it would almost be like talking to a stranger in some ways. Am I the same person? Well, yes and no. And so Marcus sums that up by saying the universe has changed. The universe has changed, life is opinion. So it's like the Buddhist doctrine of impermanence and then this other doctrine, which is really the cornerstone of cognitive therapy. The universe has changed, life is opinion. We have it printed on a t-shirt actually for one of our conferences that we did a few years ago. But he wants it to make it really concise so he can memorize it. Someone once said to Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, they said, your arguments, Zeno, are too abrupt. They're too concise. He was kind of known for that. They're not sophisticated, complex arguments. They're too simplistic and too, too abrupt. And Zeno said, yeah, you're right, they are. And he said, you know what? If I could, I'd even abbreviate the syllables. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's the right He wanted to, to make it, it as short as possible. He said, I just want people to be able to remember it when they need it mm. in the face. Mm. He said, you can go away and debate it afterwards. There's also another really odd thing that Chrysippus, the third head of the Stoic school, said to Cleanthes, the second head. So Zeno's successor, Cleanthes, was a boxer. Apparently he wasn't like the most academically minded guy, but he was very admirable. He had a strong character. They called him a second Hercules. And Chrysippus, his follower, his student, was the opposite. He was one of the greatest intellectuals of the ancient world. He wrote over 700 books. And Chrysippus used to defend Cleanthes. And he said to him, though, one day, listen, listen, old man, he said, when uh, Cleanthes was trying to explain his arguments to him, he said, don't tell me your arguments. He said, just tell me your conclusions and I'll come up with my own arguments because they're better. <laughs> like, so he said, I admire you. I just want to know what you believe, but I'll figure out the arguments. But just give me the kind of bullet point version. Exactly. <laughs> Abbreviate. I, you know, I'll figure out for myself whether there could be arguments for or against it. But I have to say, this is really profound, Donald. When you really think about it, one of the biggest issues we have in our modern world today is we talk too much. We complicate things so much because we have to fill 24 hours of programming on TV, on a news network. And, and so accordingly, more and more and more blabber is actually not helping anyone get to the truth, to the purity of wisdom. Yeah, you're right. And we're doing this just now. You know, we talk on podcasts and things like that. The Stoics were known for 
the brevity of speech, but even not all of the Stoics were like that. We can see that Seneca writes long letters and so on. Zeno was known for being laconic. So Laconia is the region in which Sparta is located in Greece. So we say someone is laconic if they're very concise in their speech because the Spartans were known uh, for being very concise in their speech. And the Stoics, Cicero says strangely in a speech, he's arguing uh, with Cato, one of the famous Stoics, and he basically says, you guys act and talk like Spartans. Hmm. Like, and he means you're, you're too abrupt and concise. Cicero thought that rhetoric had to be more flowing. There, there had to be a, a longer argument. Whereas Seneca, although we actually we read him today and we think uh, there's an argument there, in the ancient world, Seneca was viewed as someone who talked in sound bites yeah. and tweets. tweets. Um, his writings are, are full of these little <laughs> memorable yeah. sayings, although they're kind of embedded in more discussion. Whereas Cicero was seen as someone who more carefully elaborated and developed a longer argument. Now, Socrates was around these other kind of sort of quasi-philosophers that we call the sophists. And Socrates, these were his frenemies. He, uh, he had a love-hate relationship with the, the sophists. Some of his best friends were sophists, literally. But he also criticizes them a lot. And the sophists were orators. They were celebrities. They were the rock stars of the ancient world. They would travel from town to town and they would give big elaborate speeches. I guess they would be like podcasters or motivational gurus or whatever today. And so one of the things Socrates says about them is very strange. He says, look, you guys will speak for hours. And he goes, the problem is it's hard then to really evaluate what you're saying. And he introduced this method called the question and answer method. And when he talked to the sophists, he would say, I'll only debate with you if you agree to keep your part of the discussion to just a few sentences rather than answering me with an entire speech. And what he was really driving at was the idea that, you know, when someone's developing an argument, especially if it's a long one that goes on for like an hour or so, you might think, I didn't agree with the thing that you said at the beginning, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but I didn't get a chance to, to question it. And now by the time you've got to the end, I've forgotten what it was, where you started. Yeah, yeah And that, that's yeah. kind of what Socrates is saying. We get blinded by lengthy arguments and we kind of get lost in the detail. Yeah. And Socrates was known for kind of interrupting people and bringing them back, which some people thought was quite annoying. And it didn't make for very entertaining oratory, in a sense. But he said it's a better way of trying to get to the truth. He wouldn't let people proceed until he'd questioned. So someone would say, I'm going to give a speech about justice. And Socrates would say, whoa, 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 stop right there, buddy. How are we defining justice before we even begin? Oh, man, that's an engineer right there. Yeah. So people now would say, oh, this isn't much fun, Socrates. You know, it's kind of annoying. Let the guy just do his speech. Um, but Socrates would say, we, we obviously we're never going to get to the truth unless we question the definitions. The whole argument is taken for granted. And uh, that was became his trademark method, if you like. I could talk to you for hours. I'm tempted to. I'm tempted to. But I have two more really important questions for me personally. And um, before I do that, I normally make a quick announcement to remind everyone that if you're still here and you love the conversation I'm having with Donald, by the way, I'm going to let you guys go and talk to him for the few hours until he falls asleep. I love the topic, but if you love it too, share it with others. We're trying to get as many people as possible to see this wisdom and find happiness. So rate the podcast five stars on your podcast player, share it on social media. 
and tell others what you learned today and spend time personally looking at uh, Donald's work. Uh, his six books are amazing. I read two of them only, I apologize. And his uh, videos online are amazing. And it's a topic that I think is really worth your attention. So one definition, Donald, of, of Stoicism is the wise live in harmony with divine reason, uh, is to understand that sort of there is a rhythm or a direction or a, a reason for the madness and that the wise live in harmony with that. Now, I wonder, so Stoicism is not a religion, but perhaps because of the time, all of those philosophers constantly refer to the divine. Does that mean that if you don't believe in the divine, you can't believe in the Stoicism thoughts and philosophies and ideas? I think if I was being most careful about answering this question, like all good questions, you know, if you said to me, Donald, is Stoicism a religion? The best answer I could give would be yes and no. I would agree. I say the same about Buddhism, which yeah. says it's a philosophy. But to me, a religion has a position on the divine, whether positive or negative. It has a position on how to end your own suffering. And it has a position on how you deal with the rest of society, humanity, being. And I would say all of them, all of those spiritual or stoic views are, they have a position on all three. I would say, and there's some debate about this, but it seems to me that certainly belief in God was very important to the Stoics, but it's just slightly at a tangent to their main focus. Like they are doing philosophy and they disagreed with one another to some extent about the nature of God or the gods. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that they saw this as a very central, very important, but maybe not completely essential aspect of their philosophy. I would think that the main thing for them is the commitment to reason and to their moral principles. And that if one of them wanted to raise questions about the nature of the existence of the gods, the other Stoics would say, yeah, that's perfectly fine. You know, we'll We'll talk yeah. it through and have a debate about it. It's not a mandatory requirement to gain entry to the school you must agree with us about the nature of the gods. There was some scope for disagreement. And we see that in Marcus Aurelius, it seems to me, because he repeatedly alludes to this phrase, gods are atoms. And he seems to be implying to himself that whether he believes in providence, a god, that orders the universe, or whether he is like a modern-day atheist and believes it's down to chance and the random collision of atoms, either way, he concludes, I should still live in accord with wisdom and virtue. And that's partly because there were philosophers that were atheists and there were philosophers that had more skeptical views about the gods. There were all sorts of different beliefs about the gods in the ancient world. And the Stoics would look around and think that even some of these atheists and some of these people that hold radically different views about the gods are nevertheless capable of wisdom and virtue. And so we think it helps if you agree with our religious or theological views, I should say, but maybe it's not absolutely necessary. For example, they really admired the cynic philosophers that preceded them. And the cynics were cynical with a small c about religion. They made fun of religion and they expressed uncertainty and doubt about the nature or even the existence of the gods. And, and yet the Stoics admired Diogenes the Cynic as a, a moral exemplar. 
So I think they probably thought, well, we maybe disagree with him about that. But the main thing is that he's exhibiting moral wisdom, self-mastery, courage and endurance of the sort that we really admire. And they probably looked around and thought there are loads of people that believe in similar religious views to us, but lack all of these virtues, Mm. you know, and if we put too much emphasis on people's theological views, maybe we're losing sight of the main thing. Epictetus couldn't be clearer that he thinks that the only important thing, the main important thing is virtue and all sorts of different people throughout history and in the world exhibit virtue. That's an incredible worldview. It really is one of the challenges that I think religions sometimes have is the idea of I'm doing this to please the church or to please the divine. And Stoics will actually want moral wisdom for its own sake. So it is a destination or a target or an ambition in its own self regardless. And I think that you know, if you expand that to our world today and go beyond religion to all of the other differences that we paint in our world as reasons why you and I are different and start to say, but moral wisdom in itself, regardless of all of those differences in skin color or in background or in ethnicity or in gender or whatever, and can we respect that moral wisdom in itself is the target, is the destination? This kind of open-mindedness, actually, the, the Stoics were known for this. Particularly, there's one passage in an ancient author in particular who really states this quite explicitly, that he's talking kind of metaphorically, but he says that the Stoic school lets anyone in as long as they live in accord with virtue. You know, it doesn't matter if they're tall or short or black or white or male or female or if they're a Roman citizen or if they're a foreigner, you know, as long as they live in accord with moral virtue, like that's the only criterion for membership. He says that's the criterion for gaining citizenship of the cosmic city, as it were. The Stoics, you're part of, you're in our gang, you're part of our community, as long as you're committed to the, the same values. And uh, really, in a sense, Socrates sets the stage for this. You know, in ancient Athens, it's complicated, but there were a lot of restrictions on who could study philosophy. So it was mainly men who are Athenian citizens and uh, were wealthier of noble birth. So the gymnasia, where the schools were located, like the Plato's Academy or Aristotle's Lyceum, only allowed in male Athenian citizens. Women weren't allowed anywhere near them. But Socrates lectured on philosophy in the Agora, in the marketplace. In Plato's dialogues, Socrates talks to many foreign immigrants who are non-citizens, He talks to very wealthy and powerful, influential people, and he talks to poor people. He talks to slaves and does philosophy with them. And he, shock horror in the ancient world, does philosophy with women, including several prostitutes or courtesans. Mm. Um, Mm. There's even one dialogue where he has an argument with a dwarf who's very angry about the existence of the gods, if I remember rightly, or about religion. So Socrates is doing philosophy with everybody that he meets, And I think that would have made him, is part of what made him a very controversial figure in ancient Athens. They must have felt he was uh, rocking the boat, bending the rules, because he believed, many ancient traditional Athenians believed that virtue was genetic. Yeah, exactly. They thought you inherited it. It came from noble birth. Good people were born to good families, and it was passed down in the genes. And, And Athenian citizens were inherently more noble and inherently more virtuous than foreign immigrants, for example. And Socrates thought 
had this radical idea that maybe maybe virtue was learnable and it could be taught. But that's a radical idea because that means that then foreigners and slaves and women could learn virtue like, just as, as much as anyone else. But that completely upsets the whole social order. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he went around doing that. And I, I think that's partly the reason they made him drink hemlock. Not the whole reason, but it's part of it. Yeah, but isn't that exactly, exactly, exactly what we need in our world today? That idea of there is absolutely no difference. By the way, this is a very Islamic concept as well. That the only thing that differentiates dark-skinned, light-skinned, woman, man, tall, short, is virtue and good deeds. Is the ability to align to that. It has nothing to do with your genetics. It has nothing to do with your inheritance. It has nothing to do with your bloodline. It has nothing to do with your possessions. If you're from a rich family or from a specific race, but you behave badly, then you've behaved badly. So this statement is my very personal closing of our conversation because, of course, of the loss of my son, I have contemplated death quite extensively. And in the end of the trial of Plato's Apology, Socrates says, the arrow of departure has arrived and we go our way. I to die and you to live. Which is better? God only knows. Question of which is better, death or living, that's pushing it a little bit. I mean, we're, we're wired biologically to believe that living is better. Yeah, yeah. I just, as an aside, I would say Plato's Apology is one of the masterpieces of the Western totally. philosophical canon. And the quote that you just read, again, whether people agree with it or not, is a remarkable, remarkable. piece of literature. Mm. Um, and uh, so Socrates really is, in that dialogue, he raises a number of arguments that he only really touches in a kind of fragmentary way, and they are then developed in, in greater length elsewhere. And so... He's saying to himself, he considers two possibilities. He thinks, look, I don't know what happens after you die. So again, he has cognitive flexibility. He's keeping an open mind. He says, uh, maybe the lights go out forever. You're just unconscious. It's just like going to sleep and you never wake up. And he says, in that case, it wouldn't be good or bad. It would be neither. It would just be the, the absence of experience. And then he says, in the other alternative, is that maybe there's some kind of afterlife. Now, he fudges this a bit, and I think this argument is developed better in other Platonic dialogues, um, because he seems to think that if there's an afterlife, it's going to inherently be a good thing. You might think, well, what if you go to Hades and you get tortured in the afterlife or something like that? But I think what he's taking for granted is that he wants to say, look, if there's any kind of afterlife at all, in order to be there and to think and experience it, I'd have to be conscious and and capable of thought and language and reasoning. And I think he's implicitly assuming something very radical that completely fits with his philosophy, which is the idea that whatever happens to him in the afterlife, as long as he can talk and think, he can carry on doing philosophy, ask questions. <laughs> which is important for him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, he says the unexamined life is not worth living. And he says repeatedly he just wants to carry on doing philosophy. He thinks it's... Uh, examining virtue and wisdom is the meaning of life for him. Mm -hmm. And I think he kind of wants to say, look, even if I was sent into exile or even if the afterlife was kind of a doer place, if I was able to think at all, I'd turn it into philosophy. I could turn any situation into an opportunity to think philosophically. And because I cherish that so much, in a sense, I'm always going to be fulfilled. Like my goal in life is to think very deeply about things. 
And I can think very deeply about anything that you can throw at me. I, I think it's what he wants to say, which is a bold claim. This is the deepest of the thoughts of the current situation we're in, because it doesn't matter if the purpose of your life is to figure out, is to contemplate, is to, to search and become a better version of you, then by definition, hardship is just another opportunity to contemplate. Luxury is another opportunity to contemplate. Life is an opportunity to contemplate. And death is an opportunity to contemplate differently because you're going through different experiences. Yeah. And I, I would say in terms of like the value that Socrates puts on life, I think it is a bit unclear in the ancient text. And it's something that other authors like the Stoics talk about in more detail. So I'll give the kind of the abbreviated version of what I think they would say. I think Socrates is taking it for granted that life is valuable because it gives us the opportunity to become better human beings, to become wiser and, and more virtuous. And uh, we can use life either well or badly in itself. In a sense, it's not inherently good, but it's an opportunity to do good things. Or it's also an opportunity to do bad things. So life is good if we use it well, and it becomes bad if we exploit it or use it badly. And so Socrates thinks, well, this opportunity then is of some value. It's important. But I think he's also cognizant that under certain circumstances, it may be that life no longer provides us with a very good opportunity to carry mm. on doing philosophy and reflecting on wisdom. And one would be cognitive decline, perhaps, which he kind of alludes to in one of Xenophon's dialogues, another of his students. He, he mentions the fact that he's 71 at the time, which is pretty old um, for uh, an Athenian. For that time, yeah. Uh, in the, uh, the fourth century BC. And... Uh, also, it's possible that he accepted the fine in that court case. There's an implication in one author that he wouldn't have the money to pay it and therefore he may have to go to debtor's jail. So he'd be a 71-year-old man living in an ancient Athenian prison cell indefinitely, which would have sucked, basically. And so maybe he could have turned that into philosophy, but he may have thought there's diminishing returns here in terms of the opportunity to interact with other people. Uh, opportunity to exercise reason clearly. And, you know, maybe he would have thought that his life would have been short and unpleasant anyway. Xenophon more implies that Socrates thought he'd had a good innings and he was an elderly man. And so rather than kind of accept some compromise like imprisonment or exile, he was happier to face the, the death penalty and, as we might say, go out in a blaze of glory. And although that might seem kind of reckless today, Socrates does give a very clear argument about why he's willing to do that. He says something quite remarkable at the beginning of the Apology, in fact. He mentions his military service, and he says, you guys all told me that when I served in the army, it was to defend Athens, and it would be the most shameful thing for me to drop my shield and flee from the battlefield. That would be cowardice. And even facing death, you said, was the right thing to do as long as it was to protect the city of Athens. And he said, now you're telling me that I'm being stubborn and reckless by risking my life in court, but I'm standing here to defend something that I believe is far, far more important, ah. even than the walls of the city. And he would say, in fact, the city of Athens is worthless without truth and virtue and wisdom. Like Again, like life, the city walls and the community here gives us an opportunity to flourish 
and be wise and do philosophy. But that's what gives value to everything else in his mind. And he said, so I think as justified standing here risking my life to defend the process of doing philosophy as I was standing on the battlefield risking my life to defend the, the walls of the, the city of yeah. Athens. And you all told me I was right to do that. And now you're all telling me I was wrong. That seems inconsistent of you, he wants to say to them. You can see whether you agree with him or not. You think, well, he really believes what he's saying there. And, you know, I can imagine that is exactly how he felt in that situation. And he went out with a blaze of glory and he transformed it, sent shockwaves in the ancient world. And, you know, if Socrates hadn't died in the way that he had, we wouldn't have the Western philosophical tradition, at least not in the form in which it survives today. You know, his death really had a huge impact on generations afterwards. I mean, all, all the way down through history, we're still talking about him today, almost comparable to the death of Jesus Christ, you know, in a, a secular context. Socrates, in a sense, was a martyr for philosophy. Yeah, a martyr for truth, virtue, and wisdom. I mean, in an interesting way, sometimes we forget that this is what religion actually is about, truth, virtue, and wisdom. Donald, I could go on for hours. I swear this is my favorite thing ever, those kinds of conversations. I want to repeat one thing you just said, which is life is an opportunity to search for the truth and moral wisdom. I think that truly gets forgotten in our busy lives where we're first chasing a place to live, but then eventually chasing things that really don't matter. And if people start to think about it that way, that life is that opportunity to search and develop and connect and find truth, at least attempt to find truth, I think that would make a massive difference to our world today. It's the use that we make of it that matters. Yeah. Yeah. I am so, so, so grateful for your time. I'm so grateful, by the way, for the person that introduced us, one of Slomo's listeners that said, I think you're going to have a good conversation with Donald. So please continue to do that. Introduce me to wonderful experiences such as the one I had today. Donald, I'm really grateful. Thank you so much for your time. Well, likewise, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Please play your part and share this to as many people as you can. Rate this podcast a five stars on Apple Podcasts, share it on social media, and tell others what you learn. The wisdom that my guests share here and the inspiration is truly worthy of reaching millions. And the only one that can help us do that is you. Find me on social media and let me know what you think and how we're doing. I am mo underscore gaudet on Instagram, mo gaudet on LinkedIn, mgaudet on Twitter, and mo.gaudet.official on Facebook. I know you have a million and a half things that you do on a daily basis, but remember, there is always a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.